0: microphone check one two cc hello and welcome cc hello and welcome one two three four five six she sells seashells by the seashore she sells seashells by the seashore there we go rolling
1: giving yourself the power to let go of a project that you decide is not right for you or for the characters or for the world or for whatever reason i think is really key to finding the ones that are. You have to be ready to kill every story at any moment. And you have to be able to understand and have feel free to do that and to walk away from it. And and just because a story gets killed, just because you let go of something you put time into doesn't mean it's it was for nothing. Like you you've learned something from that experience. As you know, like documentary is so impossible. It's so hard. Everything out there is trying to tell you that it won't work. You have to be delusional just to think it's going to work. But then to actually make it good is like this whole other like game. You're literally trying to predict what's relevant four years from now.
0: Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 96, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. John Casby may not be a name that you're familiar with yet. Unless you're intricately connected to film festivals or an avid follower of short documentary films, you may not know of this filmmaker's work, but he is most certainly someone that you will soon know quite possibly with his first feature doc, When Lambs Become Lions, a film about two Kenyan men on opposing sides of the ivory trade. To say that it is a thoughtful, engaging look at a very complex issue that most of us don't actually really know about, well, it would be a vast understatement. For the most part, we don't generally have filmmakers onto the show who don't currently have a film out that you can readily see. In John's case, his film won't be available to the general populace until at least 2019. But I've made an exception here today, and soon you'll have an intimate understanding of how or why I made that exception. Call it self-indulgence, call it what you will, but I specifically reached out to John Casby because he is the kind of filmmaker that I've always aspired to be. He makes films all over the world, spending time with and shedding light on people and cultures that most of us may never experience firsthand. He is culturally sensitive but fearless in his approach. He throws himself into a subject and into a way of life with great abandon, all in the hopes of coming to a better understanding of not only how life happens for the people that he is filming, but how we may in turn reflect on our own prior perceptions of how life happens for other people. So as you listen to today's episode, I think that you'll pretty quickly forgive the self-indulgence and be drawn into this conversation with a filmmaker whom we may all come to know and appreciate over the next few years. His feature, When Lambs Become Lions, is one of the most impressive feats I've seen in a very long time, and his library of short films are equally impressive. There is much to be learned from this doc filmmaker. And so with that, we've got our conversation with John Casby all dialed up and ready to go. Up next here on The Documentary Life. Lately, we here at the Documentary Life podcast have been really ramping up our free live webinar events. It's a great way to learn the aspects of doc filmmaking from the experts in the field, as well as engage directly with the expert in a live Q&A setting. We've already had some great sessions so far, and our one coming up on December 4th will be no different. A few short weeks ago, it was episode 94, we had on the show acclaimed doc filmmaker and author John Reese. John is the author of Think Outside the Box Office, a book that details his and others' experiences with independent film distribution, a subject that John has since become recognized as a veritable expert on. Not surprisingly, this was an episode that was pretty popular, speaking to a lot of the DIY sensibilities of you doclifers. And so we've invited him to host a live webinar with us to further explore the subject of documentary distribution, to be followed by a live Q&A session in which you get to ask any and all of your pressing distro questions, of which I know that there are many. I get your emails, and I see your posts in the TDL Community Facebook group. There always seems to be a desire to break the code of distribution of our films. If you'd like to attend this live event, which happens on Tuesday, December 4th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in the U.S., simply go to thedocumentarylife.com to sign up. I'll post a link up in the show notes for this episode, and you can also find links to it throughout the Documentary Life website. Attending and participating in the live event is free to all listeners of the program. You just need to make sure and sign up by, again, going to thedocumentarylife.com. This is going to be a great opportunity for you, Doc Leifer, to engage directly with a film distribution expert. So get your questions ready and sign up today. So I have some exciting news to share with you, Doc Leifer. On Friday, November 23rd of this year, the Documentary Life will be hitting a milestone. We'll be two and a half years into this incredible journey and posting our 100th episode of the podcast. I know, it doesn't seem possible, but nonetheless, here we are at the century mark. Not surprisingly, this has given Steph and I pause to look back on the documentary life, as well as to look to the future of our own documentary lives. It is because of this that we have decided that our 100th episode will complete the first season of the TDL podcast, and it will allow us to take a short hiatus and return next year to start season two. Now, that does not mean that we won't be providing content for you, however. We're still going to be supporting your doc filmmaking goals, just on other platforms. We'll be building out our blog with the topics, tips, and know-how that you've been asking for and providing you with other valuable resources and insight. And, very importantly, we'll be finishing our own documentary film, Elvis of Cambodia, and documenting the experience to share with you as we do. We want to invite you into the process of the making of our film, so we'll be sending you updates via the TDL Weekly Newsletter, the TDL Blog, our social media platforms, as well as our YouTube channel. We want you to be experiencing firsthand the making of our documentary film. You'll have an opportunity to learn from our experiences, and we'd also love to hear any suggestions or encouragement you might have for us. If you'd like to be kept up to date, you should definitely subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which you can do by visiting the DocumentaryLife.com website. It's going to take some getting used to not creating this show for you every week. You know how much I love doing it and connecting with you guys. But I assure you, we'll be back bigger and more badass than ever before. We can't wait for you to see what we'll have in store for you for Season 2 of the show. And make sure that you're here for the season finale, Episode 100. Steph and I will be talking all things the documentary life and giving you a look into what we have planned for the next several months. So until then, continue to enjoy Season 1. Know that we have an incredible amount of gratitude for you, Doc Lifer, and we'll be talking with you soon. excited to bring on our guest documentary filmmaker, John Casby, to the program. John, I have recently just finished up watching your first feature documentary, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you about that film, When Lambs Become Lions. However, before we do that, we have a bit more to get into as well, but I should first welcome you to the documentary life.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely, John. And in fact, I'm talking with you today. I know that you're based out of New York, but you're in Berlin as, as we speak, are you not?
1: That's correct. I actually don't have a reason to be in Germany. I was just in Zurich, Switzerland for Ah. the Zurich Film Festival Um, and next I'm going to the New Orleans Film Festival and there was just this awkward amount of time in between and so I decided (laughs) to come and visit Berlin. I have some friends that live here and I've heard amazing things about it so I just wanted to to visit the city. um, And how's the city treating you so far? It's been good, you know it's, I actually haven't done as much Berlin things as I wanted to I've been working a lot more than, <laughs> than I was hoping to uh, But it's pretty cool It's interesting that the the city's motto is cheap but sexy yeah, uh, I like it, that It's very true like, That's exactly it um, <laughs>
0: That's what drew you it, in
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly I mean, it, it knows what it is and it's true to itself And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful special place
0: Excellent, excellent So John, often what we do at the outside Set of the show is we try to get a little bit of background context, and so I'll ask you: How and when did documentary films start? And, and even why did documentary films start happening for you?
1: I mean, my first experience with a camera was was quite young. Um, I was ten years old, and uh, it was the first time something bad had happened in my life that was meaningful. Um, my grandfather, my, so my my father's Indian, and my grandfather is also Indian. and He lives in India. Um, And he's kind of dedicated his life to working in uh, leper colonies. Um, So he kind of goes into these communities and he helps people and he provides education and food and all kinds of health care. But culturally, it's very looked down upon to kind of enter that community and leave it if you're not a leper. Oh, Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, when I was when I was a kid, he was kidnapped for what he was doing. Um, and these men doused him in gasoline and they took him to the center of town and they were going to burn him alive as a symbol of, you know, no one should be doing the work that this man is doing. Um, and he was he was saved by the police, you know, moments before before being set on fire. But I remember as a 10 year old, my grandmother calling me and telling me this story and I was just completely shook to my core Um people could do this. And I didn't really understand why they had an issue with what he was doing. It seemed like good work. Um, And so at the time, you know, as a child, I was trying to understand it. I was trying to tell people about what had happened. But there was just this disconnect between how I was feeling and how other people were responding to the information and to the story. Mm. Um, And so I, you know, I saved up as much money as I could. I borrowed money from everyone I could could ask to borrow money from. Um, And I bought a camera and I went there and I interviewed him um, about what had happened uh, and just tried to understand it. But just to give a like, it sounds a little strange now, but like my parents. Um, no, it sounds amazing. Had, were, <laughs> my parents had a very unique kind of onset of like a very unique perspective on life. They were both missionaries. So yeah. I grew up in this kind of missionary family. where We were traveling quite a bit okay. um, and they homeschooled me and they really prioritized kind of us learning, me and my sister learning um, and, an education being done by experiencing life yeah. like an adult. So yeah. for most of my childhood, most of my friends were adults. A lot of the, the schooling was actually done by just experiencing life in, in, in real time. And so they were actually quite excited that I wanted to go by myself mm. and want to go do this project and try to understand what had happened and, you know, save it and then share it with other people. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't come out of the experience with this, like, you know, huge calling that I should be a, a documentary filmmaker or mm. anything like that. But mm. I did come out of it with a, really deep understanding that this is a powerful tool. Um, And when used properly and sensitively, you can, you can really help people see things that they wouldn't normally see otherwise Hmm. um, and convey stories in a really meaningful way. And so that was really exciting. I mean, that's kind of what kicked it off for me.
0: And then uh, I'm curious at at that point um, when you put this, did you put a a finished film together then? Did you make a a short film out of this or was it really more about the experience of just capturing it?
1: So I edited a, a, a short film together, but it was pretty awful. Um, and it ended up being more of a therapeutic process, I think, for me and my yeah. grandfather and just kind of everyone involved. Um, but it was, I mean, it was cool. It was really cool to like be able to show it to people and to like help people understand what had happened and why. Um, but I think it was really more about me and my grandfather than it was about having a piece that, that was finished. And, you know, it, it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. Um, like, even now with this last film I did in Kenya, like, the motivation for doing that film was the process. Like, mm. it wasn't about... Having something finished at the end, it was really Like the 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 process of doing it was the ends for me, and I think for the characters as well. And I think that's that's really important for me because with, with Doc, you just have no idea what will and won't happen afterwards. And, uh, <laughs> dangerous game to get your expectations set on the wrong things or it, things you can't control.
0: That's right. Oh boy, do we have that conversation a lot on on this show, and for good reason. And and we'll get to the film that you're alluding to when lambs become lions here in short order. But I'm curious. You know, looking back on on your childhood at that time, how what kind of influence, or how appreciative now are you of the influence um, that your parents had about learning the world and the importance of getting out into the world? Because you've now shot in a number of locations, certainly on your short films. So. Um, certainly as a parent and you know my wife and I work in the both work in the industry and we have a two and a four year old and a lot of the work that we do takes us to developing countries in particular yeah. in Southeast Asia and and we really want to foster that kind of environment for our kids where you know they learn to to have some independence at an early age and they learn to uh, explore the world on their own terms and the world being, a much broader context than maybe it was for me, certainly, as a child. I'm curious, looking back now, how you appreciate that and maybe how that has affected the types of films and where you shoot your films.
1: Yeah, it's really funny. So at the time, as a child, you know, as we we're traveling and being homeschooled, uh, I don't think I appreciated it. Yeah, it, no. was just the, <laughs> it was just like, this is what life is like. But then I started realizing, you know, as I was slowly becoming a tween, that this is unusual. Yeah. That most people have stability. Most people have foundation. Most people have a set of friends that are their age that are always there. Mm. Um, and I started craving that because we were going from place to place every year, two years, and there wasn't any sense of any sense of a, a ground at home, and that was that was yeah. quite frustrating. Yeah. So there there came a point where me and my sister kind of. Told my parents, you know, we're done with this. Like, we don't want to be traveling anymore. We don't want to be homeschooled. We want to go to public school. We want to have a set set of friends. We want to stay in one place. And my parents were great. They listened and they were like, this is what they want. This is what they need. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. And so we moved to North Carolina, of all places. And and that's that's kind of what we made our base for high school. And then I went to college there as well but looking back, like, I think it was so important. Like it, it, I kind of skipped what I, I mean, I wasn't there to experience it, but middle school was kind of this time of deep insecurity and, uh, and kind of going through the process of puberty that I I kind of skipped over. So I didn't, I didn't understand that, that language or that structure or hierarchy. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really thankful I was able to kind of skip that and was spending that time instead kind of connecting with adults, learning about new cultures, um, understanding people that are just completely different than me. And, and, staying open and curious um, and and also just kind of figuring out who I was.
0: Mm-hmm. And how has that led you to be filming in locations like Fiji and Japan and Kenya and certainly back here in the U.S. as well? And are there themes that you feel like you're exploring through these pieces of work in these locations, these different locations, I should say?
1: Yeah, I think that that upbringing has made the process of traveling and filming feel very natural. Yeah. Um, I find myself struggling more with staying in one place than i do with constantly moving like constantly moving and going to new places and meeting new people feels more like a a comfortable default for me than than just being in new york i have a really hard time staying in new york for more than (laughs) but then in terms of like common thread between all the pieces like it they're they're less about the issue or the topic i've always thought of the issue and the topic as kind of a backdrop and what's kind of always led me and motivated me and inspired me to kind of make these these films has been the characters and Mm -hmm. having a real, yeah, the people having a real connection with them. Um, whether it's they're you know, challenging me, completely disagreeing with my way of thinking or inspiring me or just someone that I can't stop thinking about. Um, it's, it's almost always character driven and that's where it always starts for me. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of forming that relationship, having a a sense of trust and then from there kind of seeing what the issues and what, what they're struggling with and what they're exploring in life. And, and, you know, hopefully then sharing it with people if it feels like something that needs to be shared. Well,
0: and, and that's what I was going to actually ask you. So certainly what you've just described is very much the process that you were alluding to earlier. And it's a particular part of filmmaking. I think a lot of doc filmmakers are drawn to that. I myself, it certainly included. But I'm curious, are you thinking or when are you thinking about, OK, I want to get this out to, to a broader audience and I want to be able to shed a light on on a people and a culture. Is that a part of your thinking while you're making these films?
1: It is, but it's more than a part of my thinking. It's a part of the conversation. Mm. Um, I'm pretty transparent with the people I'm working with about that. And one of the first questions I'll often ask is like, do you all have something you want people to know? Like, do you have something you want to say to a broader audience? Like, is that something of value to you? Um, Because if it's not, you know, a lot of people don't feel that. Um, And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't, lend itself to kind of what i'm trying to bring to the table um and so that's something that i think is really important to have to have to state clearly up front so that motivations for both sides are quite clear and that you know the people i'm filming and and profiling and following understand why i'm there and why i want to share their story Mm. but also they you know have a reason to do it beyond just like you know we like hanging out with this guy or this is interesting Um, and actually, you know, see value in that. Because at the end of the day, that that's what happens, you right. know. And right. it's, it's really hard to always understand what that means. Um, and if if the people you're following don't want that to happen or have questions around that or are nervous about it, um, I think it's really healthy to kind of talk through all that stuff uh, sooner than later. Now, the first
0: film that I saw that you've done, John, is the feature film, When Lambs Become Lions. And I have to say, it wasn't long into the film when one of the first thoughts I had was my God, how does a first time doc maker make this film? How is that possible? And then I, you know, of course, after watching the film, I would then go back and research you, um, quite a bit more. And, and, and what I realized was, oh man, this guy's been doing film for a long time. Look at, you know, you have a number of shorts, um, at johncasby.com or your Vimeo account. And these films are are very well done, and they are, as I mentioned, shot in locations around the world. So in many ways, it would appear that yet this is certainly not a first-time doc filmmaker, and any press surrounding you describing you as such is certainly, I think, missing the mark. I'm curious, while you've made these doc shorts, have you at all been doing the doc the the short form to set you up to be able to do something like a longer piece like when lambs became lions or has it not really been that thought out or intentional in
1: that way a bit of both i started with shorts because they're more accessible right there's mm-hmm. less um they require less time they require less work um and also you know when you're still trying to f- Figure out if, like when you're still trying to kind of refine your craft and also find your voice and mm. find your motivation. Shorts are a great way to do that because you can make mistakes, you can fail, you can start projects and then give up on them. Yeah, right, which I think right, is right, so right. important. <laughs> it's so 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 important. I think having that freedom and, and giving yourself giving yourself the power to let go of a project that you decide is not right for you or for the characters or for the world or for whatever reason, I think is really key to finding the ones that are. Uh-huh. Um, and so for me, you know, shorts and I, it wasn't it, it was intentional in some levels, but it wasn't totally thought out. Like at the time, it was mostly me. Um, it was I wasn't super interested in features when I was making shorts. Like when yeah. I'd watch features, I would go to festivals every now and then I'd watch features. And oftentimes I, would, I felt like they were always like 20 minutes too long.
0: <laughs> like That's like, a lot of that happens in the doc world. I would agree. Yeah,
1: and not just docs, not just docs. Like I think narrative films as well, like yeah. they generally feel a little bit too long. And I kind of had this feeling of like, why is everything so long? Mm. Um, and so I was quite resistant to the form. Actually, I was quite resistant to, um, going out to make a feature to make a feature. Yeah. Um, and so what I would do is, you know, I would keep meeting people, keep traveling to new places, keep finding stories I was drawn to. And it was never like, this is a shorter, this is a feature. It was just, I'm here. Let's make something together. And uh, see what it,
0: Right. Let's tell uh, that story.
1: Yeah. Let's tell the story. And then, let, you know, let like the story the- dictate
0: the time length, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, and so with lambs, you know that was my first feature, but I didn't come into it thinking of it as a feature. I went into it thinking, yeah, I went into it thinking as a short film about trying to understand the poachers and why they do what they do and what motivates them and what does their life look like. And then it wasn't until about a year into the project when I realized that X, the main character, when I realized that his cousin was a wildlife ranger, that's when I was like, wait a second, <laughs> I don't know if this will work as a short there might be something more here. I don't know for sure, but there, I I think there's something um, and it was kind of just this process of following it and staying with it and staying with it and then realizing that we had like 700 hours of footage and <laughs> thinking like, this isn't going to be a show. Okay. Uh,
0: <laughs> okay, John, before you get into it, because I believe me, I'm very much chomping at the bit to get into this film, but there's something you brought up that, that I would love to hear just a little bit more about. Yeah. And it's I, this idea of beginning a project and then at some point realizing, you know what? this isn't the, for whatever the reason, I don't see this project continuing. This is not something I want to continue working on. It sounds like obviously this sort of thing has happened for you. Is there any sort of, could you put a number to it, like a percentage on, on short films that you have started and decided for whatever reason, you know what, this isn't the story I thought, or I'm I'm not, for whatever the reason, I'm I'm not going to continue with this. I'm really curious about that.
1: That's a good question. I mean, so I started making shorts seriously when I was in college. Yeah. Um and so I went to UNC Chapel Hill and they had some really great programs there that kind of taught me. I I did I studied some some photojournalism and some communications and media production and things uh, like that. But there was one program in particular there called CPJW which is uh they take students to a community and you have one week and within that week you have to find your characters, identify the story, film it and edit it. And yeah. it's just this like crazy experience where oh, you don't I love it. You know, you're with a group of 15, 20 other students. There's some coaches. And early on, it kind of made me realize, like, this is amazing. It's amazing what I can do in such a short amount of time. Right. But it also made me realize that, like, like, because I shouldn't say this out loud. I'm going to because it's important. Like, most of the stories that I felt like get, get made in this program shouldn't exist. Right? Yeah. Like, they're not special. <laughs> uh, they're, they're normal stories about things that most people already know about. Um, there's nothing really unique about them. There's nothing that really separates them. And it kind of gave me this realize, realization that, like, yeah, it's true. Everyone has a story. Is it true that every story should be told? I don't know. Mm. Is it true that I want to tell every story? Absolutely not. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. And so that program really helped me realize that at an early age, because at, at the time, you know, I was going in and I was like, I just want to be really good at this. And I want to be really respectful to people. And I want to like use these skills I've learned to help the world and help show things that need to be shown. I had this idea that everything I did had to be great. And mm. everything I did had to be the thing before. Um And more important and, and more well-crafted and, and more relevant. And it, it just showed me that I'm just completely wrong. Like, that's just not at all the case. And it's quite the opposite. You have to be ready to kill every story at any moment. Mm. And you have to be able to understand and have feel free to do that and to walk away from it. And that's quite empowering um, because it's not about quantity. It's not about how many stories we can tell. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. And and just because a story gets killed, just because you let go of something you put time into doesn't mean it's it was for nothing. Like you, you've learned something from that experience. Um, and maybe on the next one, you'll be able to identify even sooner, you know, whether you should continue with something or not. So, yeah, college was a great, great time to kind of to fail a ton and to learn that. Um, but I, I would say that like 60 percent. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Of the stories I would go after, I would end up letting go of. Either because, you know, it wasn't as interesting as I thought it was. Maybe it feels less relevant. Maybe it doesn't feel like it need to be told right now. Or maybe the characters don't feel like they really want to be doing it. Mm. You know, maybe their motivations seem Seema. Oh, boy, that's maybe, happened. Yeah, maybe for sure. I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm just tired, you know. Maybe yeah. I'm just, like, not in right <laughs> emotional space to be, like, getting in other people's lives uh-huh. and being, like, a listening ear. Which is <laughs> a huge thing as well. Like, there's so, like... As you know, like documentary is so impossible. It's so hard. Everything out there is trying to tell you that it won't work and that it's <laughs> it, right. It can't. Work. And it's nearly a
0: pointless have, endeavor. That's the beauty. <laughs> nearly,
1: you have to be delusional to think it's going to work, right? Yeah, you have to be delusional just to think it's going to work. But then to actually make it good is like this whole other like yeah. game of like you're literally trying to predict what's relevant four years from now. <laughs> like, like how can you? you're uh, you're being asked to predict the future and predict it right and do it well. It's like it's insane. Um <laughs> it's true. And so that's all just to, that's just to say that I think like as filmmakers we need to be forgiving of ourselves and let things die. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that process of doing that gives us time to reflect, gives us time to find our voice, gives us time to find what the next thing is and to do it, you know, better or more properly.
0: I'm so glad we just explored that. Thank you, John, (laughs) because that's going to resonate with a lot of people. It really is. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is, for the most part, is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film. But how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market, or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, The Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it. Take control of your film distribution and enroll in the Documentary Academy at the slash academy. We'll see you there.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's like, I remember for me, you know, like I felt a sense of guilt and shame around that. Oh, yeah. Of like letting go of a story or a character that I've invested time with or someone who shared their life with me. But I, I don't think. I think that's a dangerous kind of line to be on, and I, th- I think you have to be forgiving of yourself, and I think you have to like, go back to your core and your motivations and-, and really understand why you're doing it and why you think there's value in it and why it needs to be done now.
0: For those who are unfamiliar with the film, give us, a, give us a short synopsis what it's about.
1: Yeah, When lands Become Lions is about two men on either side of the ivory trade. Uh, one of them is an ivory dealer named X, and the other one is a wildlife ranger named Asan, and they are cousins.
0: How did you come by the story, and what's your connection to Kenya?
1: Yeah, um, so I'd done three other projects in Kenya before this one. Yeah. Um, so I had friends there, and they were actually the voices early on, you know, four and a half, five years ago, telling me um, John, you got to come back to Kenya and there's a story we want you to look at. Oh. Um, and they were, yeah. So they were kind of telling me, they were telling me about X. They were telling me about how he's an ivory dealer and how he's not what you think and <laughs> how he's out there killing elephants. Um, but for me at the time I was quite resistant to it. Um, I felt like there was a lot of media coverage on poaching and Rangers. I felt like there were a lot of films and articles coming out yeah. around conservation issues. I didn't feel like it was a space that needed more attention. I felt I like it was why. Yeah felt like it was generally oversaturated and it was kind of the six months, six month arguing process back and forth with my friends, kind of me trying to explain to them why I don't think we need to be doing this and them telling me why I was wrong.
0: Do you think they, they told you you were wrong because they knew they had an innate understanding of the complexities that was not being presented oh, yeah. to the world?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they were aware of what was being presented to the world yeah. and they felt like it was- being funneled kind of through this good versus evil Hollywood narrative. Totally, um, and that it I, has been. Right, right, which, and it makes sense why it's been, you know, that's a really easily digestible story for yeah. Western audiences, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. they felt this represented, and I think they felt like there was something much deeper and more interesting and, and complex happening, and they wanted to explore that together. So they they pushed me, and I eventually I came, I met X, and within the first week kind of all of my preconceived notions around this idea, around this topic, around who I expected this character to be were flipped upside down. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it happens within the first few minutes of the film. I mean, literally yeah. he has that kind of face, even that you, you look at his face and his mannerisms and you want to know his story. You're very much naturally drawn into, to who this person is.
1: Yes. I was hooked on yeah. day one. Yeah. I mean, he, like I, he didn't have the shame and the guilt around poaching that I was expecting him to have. Yeah. He wasn't afraid to talk about it. Um, it was very matter of fact. It was very, this is the way, this is just our way of life. And he was very, and honestly, like he was very interested in having someone hear his perspective. Yeah. Um, my, when I when I went to him, it was like, look, there's been a lot of stuff done on this topic and on this issue, but I haven't heard from the people out there killing the elephants. Like I haven't heard their side of it. I don't know why they do it. Hmm. Um, besides from just like, basically guessing they do it because they don't have money aside from that like i don't really know what their life is like or why they do it or why they continue to do it when it's so dangerous it seems like to do yeah. um when you Read about rangers being given permission to kill on site. Like, why are these guys still out there doing this? And so over the first week, we just talked. And, uh, and he kind of did his best to help me understand as much as I could. But, you know, it's it's not the kind of thing that you can just explain. You, you have to be there and you have to experience it. Yeah, you can't um, parachute in years. and just get the story no, and go <laughs> you can't. You can't. It took years of just living with these guys, spending time with them um, without a camera. I mean it was it was a year of contact and back and forth conversations before cameras came out. Wow. Um of just building that relationship, building trust. Uh, me, me checking their motivation for why they want something like this made, but them also checking mine. Yeah. You know, I'm learning a lot about them, but they're learning just as much about me which is, I think, really, really important to this one.
0: How did you get him ultimately to agree to be, and, and other characters for that matter, to be on camera? And I understand certainly the aspect of he felt like, look, there's a version of this story that's not being told. And I can be frank with that. But at the end of the day, there is still great risk for him, not only in what he's doing, but to be filmed in what he's doing. So why do you think, at the end of the day, he allowed allowed for that to happen?
1: I think a lot of it was that I didn't ask him that. Mm. I never I never said, "Will you allow me to do this?" It was always more of a like, "This is why I'm here. This is what I can offer. These are the skills I have. Do you see a use for this? Do you do you have something you want people to know?" Um, and early on, you know, he was telling me about his his father and having seen his father get killed, right. get shot eleven times by po- by rangers. Um, cause his father was also a poacher, um, and, and nothing happening it just being swept under the rug. I think he's always had this kind of chip on his shoulder about that yeah. taking place, you no know, justice being served. And I think he saw this as a way to show people, to tell people and to show people what it's actually like. But I mean, and the other thing is like early on, you know, four years ago, they were a lot more confident about what they did. Mm. Um, one thing that I think is, is often not, most people don't really realize about Kenya, especially this area is that like, it's not a secret who's doing what. This is a community of people that all grew up together and have all lived here most of their life. Yeah. They all know each other. You know, the, 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 the poachers and the rangers all know each other. They all know what each other are doing. And, and they feel, I think, oftentimes like one community that's kind of been split when poaching became illegal 45 years ago. Yeah, oh, I'm sure, yeah. And you know half of them are out there now protecting and the other half are still hunting, but at, at the end of the day they're going back to the same homes. They're, they're part of the same religion and culture and families
0: and that's and that's something that is certainly very much apparent throughout the film and and that's something that i appreciated was the complexities of that and i'm curious uh john so you have the 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 two sides of the rangers and the poachers they both were well aware of you filming but they had to have been aware that you were filming the other side as well were they not and and how did that work
1: yeah they did, and I, that was actually something early on. I was a little bit nervous about. Yeah. Um, so for the fir- for the first year, of the project, I didn't know we were going to follow Rangers as well. Okay. Um, we were just following X and Lucas. Yeah. Right. And um, then it was about about a year into shooting that we we met Hassan, um and found out that he was cousins with X, and then we started following him and his God. Ranger unit. But you know, at the beginning, I was a little bit nervous about it. But then I started realizing, like the the fact that like X goes out there and visits the Ranger unit, and yeah, the Rangers yeah, yeah. will like. <laughs> X regularly asking for cigarettes and money and Mira. And it's like, they're just all in it together. Like they don't see themselves as separate sides. And this is one of the things that X early on, like really wanted uh, me to understand was that, you know, the world looks at them as people on separate sides of an issue, fighting enemies. And yes, they do fight at times. And yes, they kill each other at times, but they don't. They don't live like they're on separate sides of an issue. Like this is one community, and so like yeah. just from just from following X, like the number of rangers I would meet that would come up to him asking him for money, asking him for help, it was all the time. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't that tricky, and we were pretty transparent. Like there was never a like don't tell one side who we're hanging out with. Like we were always kind of being honest with both sides about what was going on and what we were doing. Um, and there were also instances where you know I knew something. Or I I didn't know something, but I had a good sense that there could be something happening with the Rangers while I was with the poachers. And I'd actually want to see what was happening with the Rangers. So I'd actually bring up a second cinematographer from Nairobi to come and to film um, their side of it as well. Ah, that's how you were doing that. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting. You bring up a point that that it it makes me, um, that I can certainly connect to. Early on sort of in my doc filmmaking career, I had a moment similar to what you're describing where – you know, in Cambodia, you're dealing with a populace that you know genocide has happened. You know, 40 plus years ago, but it's a it's a populace now that, unlike a lot of places on the planet, you know, it, these are people that are absolutely functioning with one another within society years after killing one another. And I remember that I'm filming a group of, of villagers, and these two guys are. Are, are laughing and they're sharing a story because and in, in the middle of the story that they're reciting they're realizing and they were on the opposite sides one one was fighting for the Khmer Rouge the other was fighting for the royal for, forces the government and they realized that they're telling the same exact story and they realized that one was trying to kill the other and this is like sure. years and years later they realize oh wow that was you Oh my God. And, and, and they're just so sort of like good naturedly talking about it. And it's something that, yeah. and that was early on in my time in Cambodia. And then I real realized that, wow, this really is, there's so much more to this, um, than I have been led to. And most of the people outside of the country of Cambodia have been led to believe about how people operate here and in terms of like you described this, this line down the middle and then there's good, there's right and wrong, good and evil. And it's like, oh no, these people are functioning, you know, years after trying to kill themselves, they're friends and they have an understanding and they're alongside one another. And that's not something that maybe a Westerner can easily, easily grasp or understand. Certainly it's not something we've been, been taught or, or described or told to in that way.
1: It's very difficult. It's very difficult too. I mean, in my experience, I was finding the more time I spent there and the more I was learning, it was really more of a realization of how much I didn't know. Yeah.
0: I, that happens a lot with our docs, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. Especially when you're going to a new world and new community that's, that's not your own. Yeah. And you know, I think, I think with this one thing that took me a while to realize is that like this idea of right and wrong, like there's, there's privilege yeah, in that. Yeah. Yeah. There's privilege in saying that this is ethical and this isn't, and when your baseline way of living is, do I have enough food tomorrow for my children? There's a lot of things that have to be required before you can start thinking
0: ethics.
1: (laughs) Um, It suddenly becomes a luxury. It feels like, doesn't it? It is. It is. It's quite a luxury, and that's that's been really hard um, helping audiences in, especially in Western culture, like kind of put their heads in that place. Yeah. Um, Because quite, it's quite easy when you have all your basic needs taken care of to, to judge. But we, you know one thing we really wanted to do with this film was to, to really try to not judge or justify either side, but really just try to understand why they're doing what they're doing and then let audiences experience it.
0: Now, hopefully you can understand what I'm saying when I when I say this, it doesn't play like a documentary in many ways. It plays Mm. and feels like well thought out narrative cinema. How intentional was this? And when did you know that you wanted to put the story together in this fashion?
1: Yeah, it was very intentional. I think from the beginning we felt, and it kind of ties into so many stories already being done on this issue. Um, I feel like there've been a lot of documentaries made about this. And so we didn't want this to feel like a documentary at all. Um, I think we knew going in, we wanted it to be a verite experience. We knew that I was going to do a, a large amount of shooting and that most of what we wanted people to see and feel and experience, we wanted them to to actually see it unfold and not just hear about it in the past tense or the future tense. Yeah. Um, so it was very intentional. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to the editing as well. I had an amazing team of editors. Um, we had Frederick Shanahan and Caitlin green on the editing team. And then David Teague was also our supervising editors. And they're just, they are just so, so, so much smarter than me. And oh, we're able the to like, brilliant. <laughs> look at all, look at all of brilliant stuff that, you know, I, I was the one that had put all the work into getting these images and it would take me months to let go of some of these scenes yeah. and some of these characters. And some of these ideas, but within five seconds, they could just say, That's not relevant. We don't need it. Let's lose it. Um, but oh, I, yeah. I remember, you know, before we started editing, our references were films like Heat and The Departed and Breaking Bad. Like those were kind of the shows we were looking to. We weren't, we weren't really watching docs to kind of inspire us um, and to kind of push us. We, we wanted this to be something that, you know, could kind of go just beyond the doc community. We yeah. wanted it to be something people would watch because it's a real story and it's meaningful and, and you're seeing characters change over time. So yeah, it was it was very intentional. I think that's a big part of why it took four years to make. Um, I yeah. think if if we'd taken a little bit more of a traditional approach, we could have made it a lot quicker.
0: Were you there? I mean, there are some very you, you mentioned Breaking Bad, and there's definitely um, certainly the anxiety present throughout the film. I would say um, I'm curious: were there moments where you were personally ever fearful for your well being while you were filming?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah what was that like? So the first. I went on eight hunts total in the first three hunts. I was not allowed to take a camera with me. Wow. Um, and that was really hard and emotional and stressful. And, it, you know, when you have a camera and you're, you're in a situation, you can kind of justify it because, you know, you're saving it for this, this other purpose, this other meaning. Um, and it, in a lot of ways can act as a wall between you and reality. Oh, yeah. um, you can kind of separate yourself from what's going on because you're looking through a screen. But when that's taken away, you're there and you're in it. And I think for the guys, like they wanted to see, you know, can this guy handle this? Like, is he down yeah. to do this without a camera? Like, can, does he have the emotional and the physical kind of capacity to handle it? And so that was, that was really, really difficult one of the most ethically like complicated situations of my life. And this, you know, this, this theme of the curse in the film, like I was feeling that at times, you know, like that's something that after those first three hunts, like I felt awful for a long time and I had to really step away from the project and really kind of Process what I what I'd seen and what was going on, but to be to be frank in terms of like just danger I actually felt the most in danger with the rangers Yeah, you know these guys when the when the poachers go out on a hunt They plan it and they know exactly who's gonna be where they're paying people off and it's all very specific but with the rangers they're out in the bush 26 days out of the month. Um, they have no idea what's gonna happen when, and they're getting calls on these walkie-talkies at 3, 4 a.m., and they're going out <laughs> just into the darkness on foot. Oftentimes they don't have a car. Yeah. So they're going out on foot. Some of them are wearing sandals, half of the guns don't work. Uh, most people don't have flashlights. They're using their cell phone flashlights to kind of see what's going on, and we're, we're running into situation, situations where people are firing guns. And so that that to me was much, much scarier. Yeah. And, you know, I think rangers are just dying more often, too. Like, I think there was, like, at least one ranger dying at a son's unit each year. And so it, it just felt like that was the only outcome from being out there is, is death for those guys.
0: We've been speaking with documentary filmmaker John Casby. His current film, When Lambs Became Lions, is what we've been just talking about. John, how can we see the film at this point?
1: Oh, good question. Yeah. Uh, it depends on where you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right now we're doing the film festival circuit. And so we'll be continuing that through the end of the year. We have I think ten more screenings coming up all over the place. Yeah. And then after that we're we're in talk to distributors. So hopefully it'll be available to stream. Um, next year
0: yeah yeah absolutely and and we will have information on this film uh including more about john and certainly trailer a trailer to when lambs became lions up in the show notes for this episode and as that information comes in in terms of how we can see it i'll definitely be updating that page john what a brilliant conversation i feel like you're somebody that i could sit down with in fiji or japan or cambodia or kenya and just talk for hours about the work that we do Thank you so much for coming on the program today.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.